everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 46 of Archaeology and Ale, a free monthly public archaeology talk brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. This month, our guest speaker is Chris Atkinson, talking about exploring Wadsley and Loxley Common, community investigations as part of the Sheffield Lakeland landscapes. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> It'd be a bit lonely otherwise. Um, but yes, I'm uh, going to talk to you about this, uh, this project basically um, on Wadsley and Loxley Common. Um, it forms part of the wider Sheffield Lakeland Landscape Partnership, which is a project uh, run and managed by the Wildlife uh, Sheffield and Rotherham uh, Wildlife Trust and funded by the Heritage Lottery. And the Sheffield Lakeland Landscape Partnership, um, funded to the sum of 2.6 million, um, covering that huge area in there. So our area of interest for Wadsley and Loxley is somewhere down here. Um, and it was basically to do all sorts of things. Uh, landscape restoration, improve, improving habitats for wildlife, um, enhancing our understanding of the historic environment of that region as well. So there were a few investigations going on, not least the excavations last summer, was it, in um, 
Lodgemore at the World War I uh, training area, uh, not training area, uh, POW camp. And um, of course the investigations here, as well as investigations into historic routeways across the area too, and kind of trying to promote them and ensure that they're included in, I can't remember what it is, but that make sure historic routeways are included in heritage assets and public rights away by 2030 now i think the government's pushed the the the, the do free to the deadline uh, anyway i digress um uh, but the primary goal of all of this enhancing landscapes investigating the history and the archaeology and everything about it is engaging the public in all manner of the works because of course a lot of the work going on here is about climate change and making our landscapes more resilient the peatlands improving our woodland coverage having more wetlands for wildlife and if you have the public involved in that then you're going to have a greater buy-in um, and people will have a greater sense of purpose belonging and care for that landscape as well <clears throat> So I highlighted roughly, that's a terrible map, but there's Sheffield. And if you don't know, Wadsley and Loxley Common is just to the north west um, up the hill from Hillsborough really. And so all the, um, the Wadsley and Loxley Common covers, is owned uh, in trust by Sheffield City Council. It's managed by them as well, along with Wadsley and Loxley Commoners um, group. Uh, the area covers about 40 hectares. It's a local nature reserve. And within the southwest of the area, down here, it does have an area of ancient semi-natural woodlands. This is woodland that we can date back to around about 1600. And the, the assumption being that if you've got a woodland surviving in that area at 1600, it was probably there a lot longer before then too. Uh, there is evidence on there, pre-existing evidence before this investigation, of prehistoric, post-medieval and industrial activity. And the geology is of a local, uh, is of the lower coal measures formation and Loxley edge uh, sandstone. Um, so the aims of the archaeological investigation were as I say, involve the local community, the wider public in the processes of archaeological survey, develop a history of land use on the, on the common. Pre, prior to um, undertaking the surveys here, there had been an investigation in the 80s, I believe, which recorded about 38 monuments across the area uh, of predominantly related to uh, mineral extraction and the, the, the fields that are established on there. As it says, identify previously unrecorded archaeological monuments and assess their condition. Uh, this is quite important because as well as just in enhancing our knowledge and understanding of how much archaeology and how many monuments are out there and what it tells us about land use, what we want to consider is how we look after these heritage assets in the future. Um, and so through the process of the investigations, we were looking at if we said, say we had the, the, the ruins of a structure, then if there is sapling beech trees growing out of it, then we might want to consider removing those saplings because in the long term, 
if those trees are left to grow, they will pull that, pull those ruins, pull those remains um, apart further. And so we developed a series of kind of uh, management recommendations with everything we looked at in the field, so that the landowner, in this case the the council, has that in their in their data bank for uh, whenever they want to go out there and manage the landscape. And of course, enhance the historic environment record for the region as well. And the way we under well, the way we did this was undertake a level one reconnaissance survey slash level two survey, basically a rapid walkover of that landscape, zigzagging back and forth across the common, recording all the lumps and bumps, the walls, the quarries, the platforms, the boundaries, uh, absolutely every archaeological feature we could possibly come across, including historic trees. And we would record them and provide a, uh, a written description. So everyone was kind of armed with a simple one side of A4 sheet for each monument. On that, they would record an easting and northing. So we'd have a grid reference for where that monument is. Uh, we'd have a tick box exercise here where they would simply tick, is it a structure, a platform, a quarry, a track, whatever it might be, they tick there. And then in here, write a description about what that monument looks like. You'd also put a few measurements and additional information in there about the types of vegetation that's growing on the monument or around the monument, and whether it's in a good, uh, fair or poor condition. Um, and the way we did this was using handheld GPS, we use the cameras, ranging poles, the ranging poles being these scale poles down here. Each one of those is a meter long. So you'd always have that in a photo because it gives you an idea of how big the uh, feature of archeological interest uh, is. Um, as I say, we'd also have be using historic maps in the field as well. So from 1840s all the way through to 1920s, I think we had the maps for Wadsley and Loxley Common, so we could assess those. And it gave us an idea then, if we were recording a boundary, it gave us a kind of cr uh, chronological setting for when that feature was um, constructed. And of course, tape measures and things like that. What we also used during the survey was the available LIDAR data. So if you don't know what LIDAR is, it stands for Light Detection and Ranging, and it's an airborne survey technique, which basically allows you to create a individual, or basically allows you to create a 3D model of the landscape. Um, and the beauty of LIDAR is that uh, applying a particular algorithm to it, you can filter out tree cover and in particular, the canopy of woodlands, uh, which allows you to see what the ground or the layer of the, layer of the land is beneath the tree cover. So for woodland archeologists, it's quite, a, you know, it's revolutionized survey, if you like. Chris, hmm. sorry to stop you mid-flow. Go. Is the projector as sharp as it could possibly be in terms of the focusing? Um, no, <laughs> good question. <laughs> I don't know the kit. <laughs> Can it be sharper? Probably, yes. 
Well, Dare I press a button? Your investigators faulted you. What other features we can see there? Well, maybe you're going to say that. Yeah. Uh, well, on this side, this is right on the eastern edge of what Wadsley and Loxley Commons. So, eastern. Yeah, the east side of it. So, here's uh, Wadsley. Yeah, yeah. And. Oh, that's great. That's great. And the, fe the features you're seeing in there is the site of Wadsley Quarry oh, right. and, the, and, oh, yes, and the mines. So you're looking at the, the earthworks there oh, right. where they were kind of digging in and around the area. You can see the quarry when you go through it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the one on the right was me playing around and creating a 3D landscape of it. So. Uh, this is the whole common. So that area there is that little patch over there. So if you, I assume you know the common, but you can park off Long Lane down here and walk along the top. So this edge there, that's Loxley Edge, the uh, the rough sandstone edge uh, heading down slope. And that's the very top. You can just about see some rectangular shapes in there. Possibly that represents the field systems that were were constructed. <laughs> Thanks, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's, that's I just—I no, was thinking now. What's next? Oh no! Oh no! Here we go. Oh, here we go. So I was talking about lidar. We used that because it helped us to not only identify features that perhaps we couldn't get to uh, on um, on the survey area on Wadsley and Loxley Common, because down the this southern edge here. The, the ground conditions are terrible. They're pits, rocks, uh, and the vegetation is predominantly brambles as well. So for surveying purposes, it was not, uh, not ideal, not very accessible. So this is where the LIDAR kind of helped us out a bit, where we could identify things in areas which we couldn't really access. Um, but in the end, the volunteers, who were absolutely brilliant, uh, recorded over, well, over 106 monuments on the common. And you've got a kind of taster there. So you've got linear features such as the old field systems on the top, which later became playing, uh, playing fields. Uh, the quarry, we just saw that in the, the LIDAR, but also all the other quarries that are scattered around, highlighted with a, a shade of brown. Um, tramways relating to mineral extraction, running around here and up here, uh, as well as the trackways as well. This trackway is probably tramway as well. Sites of a cottage yeah. and buildings up in here. Uh, this is our cottage site. Um, uh, Adits, these yellow splodges mm. representing the, the entrances into some of the mines. And what we also- the miners after? Uh, I'll come on to it, but there are, yeah, the, yeah mixture of coal, sandstone, and ganister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so I'm going to kind of take a step uh, from the earliest 
through and kind of summarize just some of the results of that walkover survey that the volunteers did. What I should say is that the volunteers were excellent because not only did COVID not stop them, because we did the bulk of the survey all the way up to March 2020. And we all, there was the last day and we all sort of stood there looking at each other going, hmm, and knowing the news that uh, um, cancellations were imminent. Mm -hmm. uh, but whilst you were allowed through lockdown rules to go and kind of explore your neighbourhood for an hour, they individually went out and enhanced the record and found multiple features mm -hmm. and just kept emailing them across to me <laughs> so I could update the record. It was great. But uh, going through time, for so we'll start with prehistory. So prior to the, uh, the investigation, there was a, a single undated but well-used flint blade that was found um, up on the common. And there was this standing stone, which my son is kind of helpfully being a, a scale for. Um, <laughs> Um, and although recorded as a potentially prehistoric, we're not we're, we're not sure. It's right on the edge of um, the um, Loxley Edge escarpment, and could be quite easily related to that. Um, but there was kind of an investigation in 2012 of a potential stone circle site, which is not far from this, about probably about 50 metres or so away, not, not far at all. Um, and you can see some of the results of the earlier 2012 kind of markings of this concentration of stone in a poten potential circular arrangement there and loosely out there as well. Um, but... <laughs> but the local community, everybody was really quite keen and interested to find out, whoa, have we got Stone Circle? I'm going to check it out. So, of course, we did with the help of the Department of Archaeology uh, and the volunteers. So what we did was a collective survey where we undertook a tape and offset. So hopefully there's the baseline. And we did tape and offset off that of a rough ring of stone in there. I'm sorry, the colour doesn't quite work as a, a blue, we should have done a, a red or something, but the um, rough circle there, outlying stones, that stone my son was sat on is that one there. And this is one lying down next to it. Um, and with the eye of faith, you could kind of go, yeah, maybe. I mean, the vegetation was pretty thick, um, full of uh, bilberry and heather. Um, but we did, or I say we, the Royal We, uh, students from the Department of Archaeology uh, undertook a, a resistivity survey over the area. And you can see the results there kind of highlighted underneath. And they don't really show much, unfortunately. I think most of the anomalies that it's picking up here are relating to the natural uh, bedrock that's quite close to the surface there. So I think for this site, the jury is still currently out because the geophys doesn't necessarily support evidence of a bank or a ditch around a possible stone circle site. I did wonder initially whether it could be a ring cairn, but even, yeah, lack of supporting evidence. Um, 
That's not to say it couldn't be a nice community investigation where you just test it and put a test pit in the middle and see what's there. So the jury's still out on that one, unfortunately. But it was a really nice day out. <laughs> uh, then we kind of not really got much in regards to a reference for the, uh, the common until you get into the medieval times where you can start to build more of a context around it. And so unsurprisingly, Doomsday Record, 1086, uh, we know the site was part of the Manor of Wadsley, um, and it was regarded as waste. And that's not to say it was just wasteland, as in uh, not very useful. It was just land that was perhaps not financially rich. Uh, and so it would still be used, and perhaps um, certain people in the local community would have a right to use that land as well, either for pasture, for feeding pigs, right, right to collect wood perhaps for construction and fuel. Um, but any of the wood that was there would have been uh, heavily regulated and controlled. And the Doomsday Record does mention the presence of wood pasture in this area. It doesn't say exactly where it is, it just says it's one league so a league in, uh, in Norman times is about 4.8 kilometers. So there's a one league by one league area of woodland somewhere within there. Um, and it's quite possible that it is on the, the common, at least part of it. We certainly know that uh, an area within the south east of the common, Bower Plantation is regarded as ancient semi-natural woodland. So there has been woodland around there for a long time. And what the Doomsday Record also mentions is that the woodland that is there is silver pastilis, which gives us an idea of how that woodland was being managed. It wasn't um, completely enclosed. Um, it's, uh, it's wood pasture. Animals at certain time of the year, uh, the, the, the farmers, the tenant farmers, were allowed to have their livestock graze within the woodland. That therefore gives you an idea of how perhaps the trees were being managed themselves. So I don't know if you all know what coppicing and pollarding is. I know you, you will. <laughs> but coppicing is where you cut a tree down to its, to its base and allow fresh shoots to grow. Whereas pollarding is a bit like street trees where you cut them higher up uh, and allow the, the, the shoots to grow um, straight up. Uh, the bonus of this is you get nice straight poles, which depending on how long you leave that tree to grow and do its own thing, you could use it for a broom handle when the time is right, the size is right, or you could use it for the post of the corner of a house. You know, it depends how long you want to let these things grow and have a nice straight pole. But of course, if you try to do that as a coppice where everything's growing from ground level up, then your pigs and your cows, as they come into graze at whatever time of year are more than likely going to damage or kill that tree. So a theory is that the trees would be managed as a pollard where things are, people are harvesting from higher up the tree trunk. Also get a lot of place name. Just so I'm 
silly corn rice, you know, well and medieval stuff. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. so Turbury, the right to cut turf or peat yeah, yeah. for fuel. Uh, the right to fish, probably not happening here. Yeah, and of course, right to extract sand, gravel, stone and minerals. That may be, uh, may be a likely kind of right for uh, Wadsley and Loxley Common. Then we go into place name evidence, and again, this is coming predominantly from the medieval period. So, we it gives us an idea of how kind of wooded this landscape was, as is usually the case. You know, the site you're interested in is right in the join, <laughs> right in the join of the map. Um, but you've got Wadsley, and so the the common is somewhere in somewhere in here, of course. Um, but the, the place name suggests that this is a wooded landscape. You know. Wadsley itself, Wade's Forest Clearing, Loxley, Lox Forest Glade, Stubbing, meaning coppice woodland, and Hag, a place where trees were felled or cleared. Um, the sites of low ash and use, these small, likely late medieval enclosures up here. Again, the use of the word ash and use indicates some of the tree cover that's actually growing there. Um, and one of the one of the things that we obviously notice on Wadsley and Loxley Common is there are trackways everywhere, and one of the volunteers was quite interested to see whether some of the tracks could potentially link up and um, represent a marker route really between Wadsley and High Bradfield and the churches, and so we did find this kind of carved stone uh, on the edge of a, a well-established track and there was question whether is it a bit like the Burley stone um, which marks the, the route from Ecclesfield uh, via Utterbridge to Bradfield and it might have a similar one here. Um, it's Nick, yeah it's Nick isn't it? Yeah Nick's still investigating it so Every now and then I get an email with additional pictures and new stones and stuff across the landscape. But it is, it is highly possible. When we come into the post-medieval period, then we're starting to get to the, um, the common actually being enclosed. But just before then, we do have a record from 1637 and John Harris, uh, Harrison um, basically did a survey of, of the landscape as a whole. And this is a terrible map, um, but unfortunately the original has disappeared and this is the only copy left. But if you kind of squint, that splodge there is, I think, Stubbings, and then you've got Ash. Oh, what were the what were the names from the previous slide? I've forgotten them. Low Ash and Use. Uh, they are represented by these enclosures up here. So the common is in here. Uh, at a time known as Loxley Firth, you've got Loxley Wood in there as well, and it's a it's a large area and. 
John records it as including 1,518 acres uh, of common land uh, in this area. And the common is described as one great wood called Loxley, the herbage common, and consists of, of great oak timber. So um, again, it gives us an idea of what this landscape is, uh, is looking like. But then when we come to the uh, parliamentary enclosure uh, of uh, 1784, which basically saw that landscape chopped up. And uh, our earliest kind of awards map of 1789 is this one here. So there's Wadsley. And if you imagine the site today, the, the car park off Long Lane is roughly there. And the outskirt of the common as it is, is that area. And so when we undertook the survey, we did come across in this rough area a boundary that didn't seem to match any of the later features that we had. And it also looked a lot more kind of rough and tumble, uh, a bit more ad hoc in its construction. Um, and we can only assume that it relates to the original 1789 enclosure of the common and is, is that boundary there, which we assume segregates Loxley Common from Wadsley Common up here. It's by the early 1800s that this landscape as it is, is then uh, transfers hands from the Halliday family to the Payne family. And that's when the landscape that, if you've been up there, um, it's, it's where it all starts to kind of look as it does today. And so one of our early maps here of 18, must be an 1890s one. Um, but it's at this point that these fields are established. That boundary I previously mentioned is roughly in there. So it's still just about marked, but it's uh, um, less important. And with the 1800s, you have multiple fields established. You have a row of cottages or a set of cottages established up here, as well as one down here known as uh, Cave House. Um, what was quite interesting too is that, that when the Payne family started to develop this landscape, they went to some great deal to try and gentrify it as well to because we had quite interesting quite ornate boundaries established in here where at this point here there's the standing wall and you've got all this rubble behind it or well, the rubble is actually the remains of another standing wall that once stood there and so you had these kind of carriageways running in between these fields up to the cottages uh, you also have the digging of wells on the common too. So there's one right in the middle there, which is this one capped off with some old gate posts. And there was one just to the rear of the cottage sites up there too. And here's a shot of Cave House as it, as it once looked. This was constructed into the foot of Loxley Edge. So 
This is the escarpment here. This is built into it. And <clears throat> if you look at the bottom right corner, um, that cut into the escarpment is like a pantry. And you can see all along the edges and in here, you can see where they've cut into the natural bedrock that's there um, in order to put the floors of the house in. Um, and, the, and the site was there until the 1920s and 30s. And there is something ooh, I've got to add. If I can find my notebook. I can't remember the names. But uh, this is one of those sites that also has a, a degree of kind of legend and, and myth to it, where in a, a very cold and snowy New Year's Eve in 1812, um, this house, which belonged to the gamekeeper for, for the Payne family and their, and their land holding on the common, uh, one Lomas Revel murdered his wife, Mary, and apparently the, the ghost of the white lady still walks the common today. <laughs> I didn't see her. <laughs> it was when the, the common uh, came into ownership of the Payne family as well that they started to sell rights to mineral extraction. And there is an 1840s map that indicates that there was coal mining or coal extraction in the form of the, the excavation of bell pits within the western part of, of the common up here. That is a terrible photo, but believe it or not, there is a bell pit in there. Do you want to know what a bell pit is? No? So a bell pit is a, kind of one of the earlier ways of extracting coal was to sink a shaft into the, into the ground, find your coal, start to hollow it out and extract it, pulling it up back through the shaft. And what you would be left with is this kind of cavern, which would, in section, would look a bit like a, uh, a bell shape. And then once they'd kind of gone as far as they can without the, uh, the mine or the pit falling in on them, they would extract and then move along the seam somewhere else and sink another bell pit and repeat the process along. And then even upside down bell. Yeah. 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 Um, and so they were extracting coal. Uh, we don't think the coal was particularly good up there because in later maps it seems like a, an after an afterthought industry. If they came across coal, well, they'd extract it whilst they were extracting their sandstone or their ganister. And uh, one of the main organizations on here at the time was uh, the Utbridge um, Silica Firebrick Company. And they were particularly interested in the ganister, which is a fine-grained uh, siliceous rock used for making fire and heat-resistant bricks suitable for, um, for furnaces, um, which, was a big, which was a big industry at the time in, uh, in Sheffield. Um, and evidence of that activity is all over the place. So I already touched on with the, the LIDAR stuff earlier where you had, where it was highlighting tramways. So we've got this bridleway now, still a tramway, uh, was a tramway, and it's this one, this line running down from the Wadsley Gadister Works uh, site, turning left up 
into an adit. And as it turns up there, you can still see the sleepers within the watercourse that is actually coming out of this adit, preserved in the way there. And this is a, a view looking up into one of those adits. So originally there would have been a, an entrance into the mine at that far end with a tram system running up. And on the common, you've got ganister extraction going on down here, up here, all along here, all along here, and presumably it's going on here as well, um, as well as sandstone extraction. And this is a, a map from the, the coal authority, and all of the red uh, crosses represent an entrance into one of the, the mines, into a known mine on that common. So the common is roughly in here. So as you can see, there's an awful lot of activity going on uh, on the common from the 1800s all the way through to 1920s. And we get to the 20th century. Um, and it's at this point that most of the industry for coal mining and extraction comes to an end. The fields themselves are converted to playing fields. The cottages are gone. The house is gone down here, a cave house that is. Okay. And break time. <laughs> that shouldn't be there. <laughs> but look at all those smiley faces. That's a break time for me. Excuse me. Um, and it's as we go into the 20th century that we came across evidence which we weren't really expecting was uh, military related. So volunteers, uh, uh, Alan Smith and Alan Bailey um, came across a couple of newspaper articles. This one was the first one that kind of whet our appetite from the Sheffield Daily Telegraph from March 27th, 1916, which recorded the 2nd Battalion Sheffield Volunteer Defence Corps undertaking um, field operations on Wadsley Common. And this involved C Company defending whilst A, B and D attacked. And I'm not sure if you can make out, but obviously there's some officers playing with a phone and looking, you know, important. Uh, and then you've got the foot of Loxley Edge in the background, this escarpment, with the, with the infantry um, dug in with a, a pretend um, Vickers machine gun there. Um, and so that got us sort of hunting whilst we were undertaking the survey, going, well, if they're dug in, is there any evidence for them on there? And lo and behold, we found these features that didn't seem to match any evidence relating to the quarries. So hopefully you can see this sort of slight zigzag effect ditch in here with arrays on this edge. Uh, and the assumption is, is this is our fire trench with a parapet on the downward slope. The same here curving around and in, and another parapet, and this one zigzagging, a slight crenellation form to it with a parapet on the downward slope. A closer inspection of this one in particular, found it's not the best photo, but hopefully you can see, just about see some stones arranged in there, one large stone there, one large stone there. 
Um, and we assume that these represent loopholes, somewhere where uh, an infantier could lean into, use it as an elbow rest, but also under cover, be able to view through that gap at the end, through this gap here, be able to look left, right, and also have some degree of cover if they had to open fire as well. And this comes straight out of a 1911 field manual. Uh, and here's one of the volunteers, uh, Alan Smith, demonstrating with his toy gun, looking, <laughs> looking through one of these loopholes. And what we found with this particular monument there was there was a loophole here, then it curved in, went out, there was another one, and another one, and another one. So definitely kind of some military to us. And when we looked at the LIDAR, we have them standing out, these are the black lines marking them, but one there, one there, one there, there, a more kind of uh, extensive network there, and then another two just down here. And what we decided to do was have a look at this one, which is the one which had the loopholes in. So if you're interested in visiting the site, this is where the car park is at the top and what you simply do is just drop down the side of the hill and we're next to this old holly tree if that helps <laughs> but what we decided was we'd return and undertake a community excavation and this was undertaken in may last year uh, what we wanted to do was test the theory are these monuments that we uncovered uh, military do they relate to that activity in the first world war that we saw in 1916 um, again, involving the local community and the Wadsley and Loxley Commoners group, um, training them in all manner of kind of techniques of archaeological excavation from simply digging to recording, planning, uh, photography, everything. Um, we wanted to find out if it was a, uh, uh, a fire trench from the First World War. What did it look like when it was first constructed? And also we wanted to work out how long was it in use and was there any kind of datable material in there to actually prove that it was from 1916. So the first area, this on the right, is just a, a bird's eye view or a plan of the trench. Um, so this is down slope. This is up slope. This area in here is where the trench is. And then this area here is the parapet with these two arranged stones on top, which represent the loophole. So hopefully you can see that that triangular shape there where you'd have a soldier stood in or sat or kneeling in there, leaning into this position to, sh to fire and observe out this low, uh, out in this direction. And so on kind of initial clearance and excavation, this is what it looked like. So here's the trench, this is downhill, this is the parapet, and this thing was kind of constructed, set into the top of the parapet. We then looked at the parapet itself, to get an idea of what that was constructed of, and unsurprisingly, we found that it was constructed of the material that had been excavated out of the trench, which is back here. So this is a cross section through the parapet, the stones at the bottom there, they represent the original ground surface when the soldiers created or constructed 
the, uh, the, the trench. So all this material on top is the remains of the parapet. And you hopefully see the stone on the top there, which is the loophole. And then we went into the trench itself, so this big bit in the middle. Uh, we found that the, the fire trench measured about one, uh, 1 1.2 meters deep uh, and up to around two and a half meters wide. So two and a half meters from the back to the front down here. And from that back edge all the way down uh, about 1.25 meters. Um, and the, the edges of it were, you know, pretty vertical. Uh, which you would expect from a from a, a, a trench system. And on investigation, uh, we found three distinct features at the bottom of the trench. One of them was the firing position in here. So there's the loophole. That's the shelf or the elbow rest that they would lean into. This is the, the dip of the, the, the primary firing position. And then we have this raised ledge or walkway on the back. Hopefully you can see it there. So from here, it rises up onto this ledge, which is there. That's the firing position again with the, the loophole. And then we had a compartment to the rear, which is here. And if we go to the next photo, the compartment is that space in there. I do, do apologize because the trench was like so narrow. It was actually quite narrow and long. It was a pain to try and get the right photo from the right angle. Um, but we had two distinct positions there and we're still not quite sure what the rear position is other than an area where somebody could just rest their kit, um, be out of the way of anybody in the firing position at the front. And the, and the ledge being somewhere which is doctrine within the, the engineer field manuals, manuals to provide a raised, a raised clear space for stretcher bearers and individuals that just need to pass through the trench back and forth. So that may be what that kind of ledge represents. And what we found with the trench. This is a cross section now, so showing you all the different layers of soil that went into it. Um, that dark line coming down represents the rear of the trench with that back compartment floor nice and flat. Then you have the ledge going down into the firing position and then up onto the parapet and the grey there represents the loophole. But what we found whilst excavating was that this monument wasn't in use for a long time. Um, it sealed up very quickly. We did have a layer of, a very thin layer of stone at the bottom here that did have a very uh, organic soil matrix kind of mixed up in it, which did seem possibly a trample. And I did, I do query the idea whether they'd put stone right at the bottom of the fire position, perhaps as a way to prevent themselves getting too wet if the weather was poor. Then you had a, a, a form of drainage there where they could kneel and stand above the pooling water. Um, but at the rear of the trench, you've got this massive deposit full of stone, which if I go back, you can see it in the section coming down there, all that stone. And the soil within there was deposited in one go. 
and beneath it was no evidence of any accumulation of organic material, any hill wash material as well. If this had been open for a long time or an extended amount of time, then you'd expect to find sandy materials and organic materials washed in at the foot of the trench. But we didn't find that. And so I'm tempted to kind of say this may have just been open for a day or two, possibly a, an extended weekend before it was filled in. Um, because you have this filling moment, you have a layer just on top of that which does seem more like your natural colluvial, a hill wash being washed down slowly into the foot of the trench and then the green represents your natural kind of leaf litter and uh, your, your topsoil. Um, <clears throat> one of the things we also looked for was a parados, a bank or a, a defensive feature at the back of the trench which we didn't find at all uh, in the end. But that dark uh, soil layer there represents the original ground surface at the time of the, uh, the fire trench's construction. And then it reappears down here going through. So you could, you could gain a picture of what the lay of the land was before this uh, trench was constructed. And on the next slide, it just gives you a kind of stripped back version to show you a cross section of the monument when it was first constructed. That's, that's what it would have looked like. So all of the material from in here, that space is represented in the parapet that's constructed there with the large loophole on the top. But of course we've got no datable evidence, which was a bit of a pain. But our sleuth kind of um, volunteers um, got on the case and we also had help from a, a military archaeologist, Chris uh, Kolonko, who happened to have a copy of the 1908 Royal Engineers Field Manual, which was, which was really useful. And he sent this picture across, which showed a kind of crenellated pattern a uh, fire trench, it even says it there, look, a fire trench. And um, you can see the, the soldiers there leaning into it. And here's a, a kind of stripped back plan of it, leaning into those loophole positions. Um, and again, from the same manual, there's the loophole positions. And so what's quite interesting is if we were going to say this was a 1916 operation and it was constructed in 1916, then they were using the 1908 manual or the 1911 manual as their guidance. And that's, does that mean that their kind of NCOs or their commanding officers are, they, they didn't serve it, um, on the front line in the First World War. They're, they're, they're looking back to their old manuals from when they were pre-war and using those as a, uh, as a guide and just giving the soldiers a sense of kind of, this is what it's like. So yeah, we're gonna build it like a pre-war fashion, but of course, when you get to the Western Front or wherever you're going, the trenches are probably already gonna be made anyway. Uh, but if you gotta make them, then someone there will tell you how to make them. Um, or at least that was our initial thought until some further sleuth detective work found some more newspaper articles 
um, from the, uh, the Sheffield Telegraph and such. So we had evidence of military activity on the, on the common from 1864 with the Hallamshire Rifles uh, deploying up there under the command of a Captain Vickers for four hours. And they undertook, as it says there, battalion-scale manoeuvres, uh, uh, including volley and file, file firing and skirmishing. But in that article, it doesn't say anything about entrenchments or constructing uh, trench systems. What it does say, though, is they had lots of beer and lots of sandwiches provided by the locals and had a really nice time uh, before marching back down to, uh, to West Street. Uh, and then in... April 1906, we have the Royal Engineers and Hallamshire Volunteers back up there, tasked with defending Sheffield. And there was this massive exercise where the Royal Artillery, Royal Horse Artillery, some other infantry unit, uh, light, light, light infantry unit, were doing mock battles and were going to capture a bridgehead in Sheffield and they were coming from the west. And so the Royal Engineers and Hallamshires were the blue team and tasked with defending Sheffield. And there is an account there where they do withdraw from Low Ash after defending that position um, to Loxley Common, to entrenchments dug within the, within the area of quarries. Um, and I think that's it. I think that's our kind of best candidate for when these monuments were constructed, rather than 1916. I would imagine in 1916 they reused them, you know, but because they're still quite significant kind of features, they're significant earthworks that you could still practice in. But I have a feeling that um, a more 1906 date for these features being constructed um, is, yeah, is what we're looking at there. Um, it's just a shame they don't really say anything else. They withdrew to the common, but then uh, by that stage, over a thousand spectators had rocked up, and and they thought we better cancel this. <laughs> it's, get, it's getting a bit out of hand. Um, and so, and so that was it. That's Wadsley and Loxley Common, as far as this investigation goes, in a nutshell. Uh, I'd just like to thank. Sheffield and Rotherham's Wildlife Trust for kind of having me on board and contracting me to do this. Uh, in particular, Alex Sovereign, who was their community archaeologist at the time, for having me on board. Um, and of course, to the National Lottery Heritage Fund for kind of funding this project as well as all the other wonderful projects they fund nationally. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chris. Do you, have we got time for a couple of questions? Yeah. Does anybody have any questions? Oh, excellent. I do. Oh. Um, <laughs> I don't think it'll be a hard one. Um, uh, in your map of the trenches, they were kind of stretched all the way along. So do you think they were always just little pockets of trenches, or do you think they extended all the way along the edge? Yeah, they were, they were definitely just little individual yeah. yeah individual trench systems and there there might be some on the so they're looking south um they, they got a south facing direction i'm quite sure there's some on the other side of the ridge looking north as well um but we just didn't get around to recording them properly but but that's for another day <laughs> can i ask about the shape of the uh, of the enclosed area. 
a bit like a dumbbell, only one end of the dumbbell was much smaller than the other. Uh, how did that arise, actually? And which is Loxley and which is Botley? Um, I've no idea how it arises and why that shape was chosen. Mm. Um, it, almost, just, but, it almost doesn't exist. Mm. Narrow area. Yeah. Um, but the Wadsley bit is... Is it the one oh. with the Yeah, with the big quarry in is yeah. definitely Wadsley, if I... So where the golf course is, uh, would that have been part of the... No, right, yes. So the one on the... So, yeah, go on. So that's Wadsley Common, yes. all the way along and oh. down to about there. So I, I think this is this is Loxley Common down here. Right, yeah. And I think the, the, the boundary is very much... You can almost just look at the escarpment of Loxley Edge mm -hmm. and use that as your boundary. Although, as I say from that survey, we did pick up that, that boundary that seemed to correlate to the, the 1700s uh, Enclosure Awards map, which, which might be the official boundary. Mm. But it's so, certainly the boundary is somewhere in there between, between the two commons. And you don't know why that funny constriction came about? No. Is what, is no, this little bit here. Yeah. In taking bits off it or what? Well, that was the enclosure. It was all about just trying to enclose as much land for agricultural purposes yeah, yeah, as possible. Right, yeah. And so, yeah, if someone had rights on it, they took it. Um, I have, what's the state of that bit um, at, at present day? This bit here? Yeah. No, no, the, the kind of squarish bit where they really tried to clear everything. Um, uh, it's... it's it's open to dog water, walkers. Oh, yeah. um, it's, it's it's just rough pasture. Yeah. Um, well, where do you walk? You walk down to Rosen Crown somewhere. Where's uh, I, uh, I should know. I never went to a pub. <laughs> 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 does, that, does that go through that funny bit or? I don't know. No, I don't know. I know there's a trackway that kind of. Pops out here somewhere and yeah, yeah, heads off right, yeah. on that on that point. Yeah. Oh, right. But, that's uh, yeah. Another question. Yeah. Um, so you thought that perhaps there might have been some medieval mining happening in this area. Did you actually find any evidence of that? No. No, and I often think because this has been such an important site for mineral extraction for whatever it's been, coal, sandstone or, or uh, ganister, um, I think their works have kind of erased anything earlier. So it might be difficult to, to find. Saying that, I didn't really go out and have a proper look. And we there are, across the site, there are, you know, small delves, small pits, right, really shallow ones, kind of everywhere where it looks like people have just taken opportune kind of, oh, we'll have that boulder, it's lying there, we'll take that out, and it's easy access. So, I mean, they could be, so at least some of them could be medieval in origins all the way, all the way through, but because you've got so much mineral extraction going on all in the same space, the chances are they're kind of erasing each other out. Mm. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to, but there's nothing planned, nothing planned at the minute. I know the uh, the local community are very, very keen to do something. So, Chris, the, the whole 
theme behind our talks this year has been sort of community involvement in archaeology. Um, we've seen lots of photographs of happy smiling faces and mentioned how uh, your volunteers have, have, have sort of come up with trumps on certain pieces of information. How many people has your work, how many volunteers have become involved in this, how many people have it touched? Um, I think with this, I think it was over 80. I, I can't remember the number. Uh, over 80 is quite good for this because it was a two-week excavation and five days survey. So, yeah. Yeah, over 80 with lots of people kind of stopping by and having a look and seeing what's going on. Right, if there are no more questions... I, I would have thought if the... Um, firing point had been actually used for firing, then you'd find, even with a thousand scavengers, you'd find some casings or something. Yeah. But presumably if you, if you had, you would have mentioned it. Yeah, we didn't find anything at all. And there was so, no... So maybe it was a practice trench in the sense of a pretty dry practice. Yeah, yeah, could, could well have been. And as I say, if it's relating to that 1906 event, so yeah, 1906, um, by the time they'd got to Wadsley and Loxley Common, they cancelled it. They cancelled the exercise. So, um, yeah, they may not have been used in anger, <laughs> if, you, if you like. And the 1916 really does look like a, a dry exercise. Um, I mean, the, the machine gun they had was uh, made of wood or something. So, <laughs> yeah. Can we just say thank you very much to Chris once again? Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Archaeology and Ale. For more information about our podcast and guest speaker, please visit our page on the Archaeology Podcast Network. You can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram or Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.